Hi, and welcome to another episode of Real Estate with Howard Drew Kirsch. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the co-founders, along with Arthur Bartram and Ron Petticord, of the largest independent real estate brokerage in Canada with over 5,300 agents. I've also been a member of the board of directors of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. I've also been on the board of directors of the Real Estate Council of Ontario, which is the regulator for all real estate agents in the province of Ontario. And I sit on the board of the company that I co-founded. If you're interested in finding out more about me and my journey, you can look at, uh, in fact, you can't look at, but you can listen to our first episode called Intro. Uh, it's audio only. All the rest of our podcast versions uh, you can find on YouTube as well. This isn't a typical real estate podcast. Um, what we're doing is interviewing agents, brokers, people in pre-construction, developers, people who market pre-construction, media people, and people in and perhaps quite a bit outside of real estate, but just fascinating people with fascinating stories. Um, the, the thing about this business is it, it's challenging. It's a very difficult business. And all the people that we've been interviewing have found a way to overcome setbacks, roadblocks, um, failures, rejection, and keep on that trajectory until they became successful. My own background in, in the business was for 20 years, I was a real estate agent. Then when we started the company, as the company grew, I took on the role of managing various branches. I was, we opened them up, and I also was president and broker of record at the company for some time. So, so without further ado, um, I want to introduce our guest. And before I do, I want to thank someone who is a mutual friend of ours, Lisa Wall, who's the manager of education at RICO. And Lisa, thank you for connecting Ted and myself. Um, and oh, Ted and I, I think we'll have a great podcast. So thanks. And so Ted Siakopoulos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for, uh, for having me here. And in my finest version, Tay Connie's. Uh, I've never heard it pronounced better than that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, normally I ask, uh, you know, where did we meet? But I, I, I did the introduction. We met thanks to, uh, thanks to Lisa. Um, I like to ask people a bit about their family background as well. Can you tell us a bit about yours? Sure. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I was born in Toronto, raised uh, here. Uh, from immigrant parents uh, who uh, who came from uh, who were born in Greece, um, I am uh, married, wonderful wife, wonderful son, uh, happily married for uh, I guess we're going now on to sixteen years. So so it's been great. Um, uh, you know, always having a, a different perspective on life other than your own is, is never a bad thing. Mm -hmm. so. Um, in your career, and this, uh, I guess, replies or applies to, to people in many careers, um, what would be the importance of luck, persistence, hard work? I think it's critical. Work ethic is critical. Um, you know, I think uh, the uh, university down south, uh, psychologists at the uh, I think it was a San Francisco university did a study that looked at what dictates success in people. Is it their IQ? Is it the, um, you know, their physical appearance? Is it the uh, income and household they were raised in? Um, and, you know, what came out ahead is grit. It's work ethic. It's mm -hmm. uh, passion. And um, personally, I've tried to bring that 
uh, into whatever I do, whether it's, uh, you know, involved in, in organized sports or uh, in the corporate boardroom, I, um, I always try to, uh, to bring uh, passion and, and work ethic in whatever I do. I know that um, you have a you also have a strong background in sports. Uh, how did you get involved with that, and what what uh, you know? How far did you go with sports in that way? I had a passion for soccer. I had a passion to play uh, professionally in Canada at a very very young age. Um, I was fortunate; my father got me involved in soccer at a very young young age. I think it was under the age of nine. I think um, you know. I still recall taking those drives along Lakeshore West. Uh, every weekend to uh, to Exhibition Stadium to watch the Toronto Blizzard. I'm dating myself here, but uh, you know my father and I would take in those games uh, back in the 1980s, and and that really helped me develop a passion for the sport. Um, uh, you know, I, I I really thought I was good at, at it, and with a little more training, uh, I could play professionally. It was really a goal of mine. Uh, my parents had different views. They they saw soccer as a uh, recreational sport, as a hobby. So we did clash. We, we had <laughs> some pretty significant uh, uh, clash clashes in terms of what my future and where I should be headed and what I should put focus on. At the time, I was putting 90% of the focus on soccer and probably only about 10% focus on my, uh, on my schooling on academics. Oh, I think the 10% turned out pretty good. <laughs> you did, yeah. You know, I mean, being the chief economist at uh, CMHC, um, that's, that's a testament to your, uh, your academics. Uh, I, I don't know your soccer skills, but I gather they're pretty good as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there were some life-changing moments for me, Howard, mm -hmm. uh, along the way. Okay. Um, well, well sure if you want me to go into that, but because uh, sure. I'll let you lead okay. the conversation. Um, well, um, I mean, we did, you know, you, you did outline that you had to choose between these two passions of sports and, uh, and academics. Um, but maybe you can, you know, fill, fill in the blanks on what, what were the life-changing moments that got you to make those decisions that you made? Two, two really stand out here. Um, you know, my grades weren't very good. Um, I, I'm going to be quite frank. First year of high school, I think I was averaging 55%. My parents were quite concerned. They made some sacrifices coming to this country. They they didn't have formal education, so they they really wanted to see their 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 kids excel on the academic side. So as I say, there was some butt-heading there between myself and my parents. I had a different passion. They had a different passion. Uh, and then there were two life-changing moments, coaching moments. Uh, one both around the dinner table. Uh, one night having dinner, um, I was eating, and uh, from the corner of my eye. I noticed my mother scribbling some notes on a on a dinner napkin, and I asked her, "Well, what are you what are you writing?" Uh, and she turned to me with with stress in her eyes and told me quite bluntly, "I want to ensure that the income coming in can pay for the food and all the other expenses." And you know that moment sort of stuck with me for for a very long time. The message there for me was, "You can't live beyond your means. You need to plan." Uh, and you need to strike a balance between consumption and savings. So that, that really, really stuck with me at a very, very young age and really shaped my life later on. Uh, the second kind of coaching moment, life-changing moment, um, they decided to take my, myself and my, my sister to Greece one, one summer. Um, and there we were sitting at a restaurant waiting for our meals. 
And again, at the corner of my eye, I would see kids probably in and around six, seven years old, uh, bussing tables, uh, perspiration, perspiration running down their foreheads, waiters barking at them. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? So, um, you know, those were really two life-changing moments for me that really shaped uh, really the future uh, in terms of my career path and really how do I, how I uh, manage money uh, more generally. So, yeah. Well, I know that you've had an incredible career, including a book that you uh, published last year, Property Trendsetters. Um, do you have a copy of the book before we go on? I always like to give our guests a chance to plug their, their work. Sure. Yeah. Uh, here's a copy of it. Okay. Uh, it is available through Amazon. Um, a lot of the proceeds, all the proceeds go to charity, um, uh, supporting women who face domestic violence. So that was really one, one motivational reason why I got involved. Uh, I thought it was a great charity. Great. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about your career, uh, you know, as a, a very well-known economist uh, who've done interviews on TV and so many programs, um, th- there were some, um, some super successes uh, in your life, right? Um, and I believe it was 2004, 8, and 15. Uh, do you want to talk about what they were and how that affected you? Yeah. So you would probably be aware of this, Howard, being in the industry for a long time. Uh, Leading up to 2004, we saw the housing market really starting to take off again. Uh, after, I would say, uh, 14 years of being stuck in in neutral. And um, housing demand, housing prices started growing again. Um, and it really created a lot of concern in the industry. Uh, people were asking, well, is this the late 80s all over again? There was uh, talk that, you know, could this be another bubble that was ready to burst. Um, you know, our our board of uh, the chair of the board of CMHC also, I recall, coming into our Toronto office, uh, asking to speak to the GM. I got pulled into the conversation. There was clearly concerns from our board. You know, what is this data telling us? And um, right after that, a week later, we got a request from the Ontario Home Builders Association to deliver a presentation to their builder group. Uh, in the fall, um, and uh, they were meeting in Niagara Falls. I was asked to deliver the outlook. So I had to put a lot of the noise aside and really look at the the market objectively and look at the data. Um, But I went a step further. I actually, you know, we we were experts in housing, and we sort of tried to apply those metrics to the housing market in the United States as well to see where was the the vulnerability um, highest. Was it really here? Or was it south of the border? Clearly, a lot of people were pointing the fingers north of the border, uh, U.S. economists, uh, pension funds, institutional investors. So I walked into the conference, and uh, my conclusion was that there was no bubble brewing. There was no speculative activity because of X, Y, and Z. Um, And I clearly pointed the finger south and showed some metrics why we should be concerned about what was going on in the U.S. And this was in 2004. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, we know what happened um, thereafter. And so when I look back at my career, I will probably look at that moment quite fondly. 
you know, we didn't get awards or trophies. Nobody looked to us for commentary on the U.S. housing market, but we were the go-to uh, organization for insights on Canadian housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, looking back, I'm going to look at that moment as, uh, as a, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a happy moment for me. As an economist, you have to celebrate <laughs> those successes because it's a humbling experience at the best of times. Well, I think the thing about being an economist uh, uh, everybody's an economist, but you're the professional, <laughs> so to speak. So everyone has an opinion. Um, what about 2008? How did that affect you? Well, it was 2008 was really an extension of our uh, uh, thinking in 2004. We stuck to our guns. And, um, you know, by 2007, 2008, uh, the housing market had already been cooling off in the U.S. We were into a credit crisis caused by housing. Um, and, of course, that triggered a recession. Um, and we were we were asked by CTV News to come on and give our perspective on things. And I remember the uh, CTV Newsnet uh, anchor asking me point blank. Uh, she had read some of our commentary. She had asked me point blank, Ted, you can't be serious. You can't be telling me that Canadian housing, the Canadian economy won't, won't be impacted by what we're seeing south of the border. And, you know, we, we stuck to our guns. Um, and, and our messaging was uh, that... Yes, we would feel a slowdown in the U.S. economy through the trade channel, no question about it. But there was something fundamentally different about Canadian housing versus U.S. housing, uh, and that was how we underwrote mortgages, uh, how we qualified uh, borrowers. Um, We were pricing risk properly in this country. Uh, There was a collapse in the pricing of risk in the United States and thereafter in Europe, as you know. Um, So, you know, we thought that, you know, this would be a fine moment for Canada. This would be Canada's finest moment to shine, I think was uh, how I paraphrased it. And again, you know, we, I was fortunate, we were fortunate that um, we got it right. Uh, we did see a dip in, in housing activity, but it was very short-lived here mm-hmm. in Canada versus the United States. It took them quite a bit to dig themselves out of that hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2015, wasn't it also an impactful year for you? Yeah. So, you know, forecasting isn't an exact science. We, we ran into some, some, some problem years forecasting uh, the market. You know, 2011, 2012, uh, 2013, we were off the mark for sure. Um, and, you know, we, were, we took that quite seriously because a lot of, of our clients were turning to us for direction. Uh, they were using our insights to help guide their decision making. So we were we were tracking our performance both in an absolute sense, but also relative to other forecasters externally. So how were we doing? And we were clearly not doing as well as we would we would like. Uh, and I um, I took action with a colleague of mine. We put a, a team together to roll out some training. Um, you know, we had a lot of turnover among our economist group and. But clearly, we needed to upgrade some of the, the toolkit, the, the skill set of our existing economists. And we rolled out some uh, modeling and forecasting training across the country. Um, and, you know, in 2013, 2014, uh, we spent a couple of years trying to get our models right, our forecasts right. Uh, and by 2015, we did turn the ship around because we uh, 
Uh, our, our economists in Ottawa, on a national scale, were in the top three uh, in terms of forecasting accuracy. Uh, our Ontario economist team that I was leading uh, here hit number one. Um, so we, we were able to really turn things around quickly. Um, and, you know, it, again, um, forecasting isn't an easy thing. Um, one thing that helped us out quite a bit, Howard, is that we weren't very exclusively model-driven. I, I made it known to our team of economists that we needed to use a qualitative approach as well. Uh, so I had everybody uh, at least three times a year survey people on the ground floor, people like yourself, realtors, builders. What were they seeing? What were they looking at? Uh, what were their thoughts? Um, so we were able to get not just input from models, but input from people on the ground floor. We build those relationships over the years. And, um, you know, in years where we were confident about our, our outlook, it was really those years where what we were hearing from the industry was what the models were spitting out. I mean, mm -hmm. that's when we thought, okay, you know, we're, we're very confident to make this call. Some other years, uh, both of those indicators were pointing in, in, in different directions, and that's when we had to really look at the data closely and make a call. But I, I would say um, we had some rocky years mm -hmm. uh, in forecasting, but we were able to turn it around uh, in 2015. Well, I think what I really enjoy is you know your your absolute uh, clear openness about these things. Uh, you know, because everybody expects you to be perfect, right? And uh, um, that's never going to happen. But but being able to uh, you know accept when things don't go right, I think that adds to credibility. So so you know uh, to me that's the way that's the way to approach any career. Um, well, absolutely, absolutely. And um, you know economics isn't you know an exact science. Mm -hmm. I remember a professor once telling me, and uh, his his words resonate to to the day. Uh, you know, economists have to stop being apologetic about when they misforecast. The reality is, is this is an abstract world, and we need to come to grips with that. There are a lot of moving parts, and uh, so we need to we need to acknowledge that. Yeah, I think obviously, I think you've done a, gr a great job in your career. One of the things I always found interesting uh, in terms of my own career and in, in people that I that I've talked to, and, and today I'm going to ask you the same question: How important was dealing with risk? Um, you know. Uh, I guess, primarily in your role as an economist? It was very difficult in the sense that um, you know, for, for a large part of my career, we were forecast, uh, sorry, we were focused on uh, releasing a baseline view of the housing market and the economy as a whole. Baseline meaning we were putting all our eggs in one basket. We were saying, Here's how things will uh, play out over the next year, over the next couple of years. And that is a very risky proposition, particularly when uncertainty starts growing. And when these black swan events like uh, a shock, a credit crisis, uh, a global recession, a pandemic, when those things start rolling around, you really need to revisit your approach. Um, and we... Um, Following 2015, uh, we really began to get into more of a scenario forecasting world and really started thinking about, you know, what possible outcomes could we see? Um, and that's the way we dealt with, with risk. Uh, not an easy thing uh, because you really need to engage in an exercise 
about, you know, where are those risks coming from? What could happen? Um, and, and really um, communicate to your audience that, you know, and just be, be truthful that, look, we don't think, we don't have a lot of confidence in a baseline, in one, a baseline one, one type of scenario. We are developing a high and a low scenario. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's how we dealt with risk. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, when you get into a situation where you put too much eggs in one basket and things turn on you, then that's when, when things get, get, uh, get, get really rocky as a forecaster. So I learned a long time ago that uh, a scenario approach always uh, is the way to go uh, when, when, when there's risks in, in the marketplace. So hopefully, hopefully I've addressed that question. Um, Very well. Um, that's what you were getting at. Absolutely. Um, here's one that probably you, you'd be able to answer quite easily. Um, who has been your biggest influence in your career? Yeah, a great question. So um, obviously, having spent most of my life uh, uh, with my parents, I, I would say uh, my parents were, were great role models. Uh, you know, we, we did butt heads quite a bit on what my future should be and could be. Um, and if you asked me at the time, back when I was in high school, were my parents uh, demonstrating leadership competencies? Or uh, I would tell you no, because while their vision of what I should be doing in life may have been correct, uh, the hows, the way they went about trying to convince me probably wasn't the right way. But if you were to ask me today, um, did, uh, did my parents demonstrate leadership? Um, I would say they probably hit a, hit the ball out of the field. They, they hit a home run. Um, leadership to me, isn't about the money, you, the amount of money you make, your, your title, uh, your pecking order in an organization. It's really about what impact are you making on people's lives? Are you influencing people's lives in a, in a positive way? And, and have you impacted the, their trajectory, their career, their long-term trajectory in a positive way? And on that front, I would say um, my parents probably uh, would score high grades. Um, so clearly my parents, obviously my wife has been a, a tremendous, my wife and my son have been tremendous inspiration in recent years. Um, and, you know, I had some great teachers, Howard, uh, in high school. I often get engaged in conversation of, uh, about, uh, you know, my graduate studies and a lot of people talk about their work in university and somehow my conversation seems to come back to high school. And uh, that's when I really found out what I wanted to do the rest of my life and work as an economist and, and kudos to my uh, economics teachers uh, in high school who, who led me down the right path. So these are all mentors of mine uh, when I look back. Well, you know, Ted, I love your authenticity because one of the things that, that you know, that you don't find a lot with people at your level is a there's a kind of a guardedness, guardedness about how to, how to respond. And I just think you're, you're being great for, for our podcast. Here's one that uh, probably also might easily come to mind. What, what has been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome? The biggest challenge? Um, I would say... Because I participated in organized competitive sports, you know, I was able to develop leadership skills at a very, very young age. Soccer helped me 
in so many ways, not just building a social network, but and it was fabulous health-wise, right? Cardio and the rest of it. But building leadership skills was 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 clearly something that I've tried to bring into the corporate world. And um, I've always had a we-we attitude, um, Howard, not a me-me attitude. Um, I had, you know, playing soccer created a lot of passion, a lot of adrenaline. And I've brought that into the corporate world, and some people don't respond to that in the right way. They they often get intimidated by the passion, the work ethic, the 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 team type of environment you're trying to create. Um, and so that I would say has been a real challenge trying to influence people to see the world the way I see it. And uh, you know, uh, some of my Mentors are also athletes in the sports world. Uh, you know, Doug Gilmore is a real mentor, sports mentor of mine mm-hmm. uh, for many, many reasons. I remember bumping into Doug Gilmore at a party and I asked him what made that 1993, 1994 team so successful. And he turned to me and he said, we, um, we loved each other. We trusted each other. And we didn't step over each other's feet. We we had trust in, in that our colleagues would do the the job that they needed to do on, on, on the ice. So yeah, I, um, you know, finding people with the same mindset uh, has been has been a challenge. Not that they they they, they don't exist. I, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of great leaders at CMHC. But you know, sometimes you would run into um, people who put up hurdles either because they don't see leadership the way you do or because they are intimidated by your passion, um, your leadership. So, and you know, this is a problem everywhere. I don't think it's just uh, an issue in one company. What about this? Um, if a young person came up to you and said, Ted, um, I want to be an economist in, you know, in this day and age, I'm sure this happens anyway. How do you respond to that question? So um, here's how I would respond to it. It's something that I did at a very young age. I call it the the PPE principle. <laughs> I've developed at a young age. Okay. Um, have you and the PPE stands for the following. P is have you planned uh, the steps that you need uh, to get to where you want? So do you have a plan in place? The second P is, are you passionate about that mm-hmm. uh, area as a career? And thirdly, um, are you going to stay committed? Are you going to execute that plan? Mm-hmm. So the PPE principle is critical. Planning, passion for what you want to do, and a plan, you know, again, a commitment to execute. Right. Uh and I would say if you have all those three principles, you will succeed. You will definitely succeed. Um, there was a, um, a young woman who inspired me in recent days who posted something on LinkedIn. She, um, she uh, graduated with an uh, economics and finance degree at the University of York in, in England. And um, why she, you know, and people can inspire you at any age. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be older than you or have more experience. I, I got inspired by this young woman who gave thanks not just to her support network uh, and her teachers, 
but she gave thanks to a higher power, uh, which is something you don't see. Uh, but I, I think that beyond just the PPE, you know, if you have a faith and staying close to your faith, mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, I think is also something that uh, that uh, that I think is critical. It certainly helped me uh, along along my path, my career, uh, and I've always been one to say it wasn't about me; it was the the support people around me who who made a difference. Yeah, I think particularly in this time of COVID, I think you have to have a faith. You have to have a strong faith that um, you'll get through it, you know, that we'll all get through it. So I, I'm a big supporter of what you answered, and uh, and I uh, I also agree that you, you don't always get advice from people older. You can get some advice from young people as well that is, is impactful. I have one more question. This is always my favorite. Um, Ted, if you had the opportunity to tell your 20-year-old self something, what would you tell him? Um, I, yeah, very good question. So Ted, at 20 years it always, of age, it, Ted, I, it always, you hear me, uh, Helen? Yeah, it always gets the oh. same response. Very good question. When I got it, I was thinking the same thing. So go ahead. At 20 years of age, I was um, clearly in, I guess, the first, second year of university. But uh, I had a tremendous work ethic, uh, and I developed that through high school. Uh, I wasn't great. Uh, my marks weren't great, as I say, first year of high school, but I was able to make a positive change in my life. Uh, and the problem was that while 90% of my time was focused on soccer, first year of high school, that shifted dramatically. The pendulum shifted to academics. So I would say academics took up about three quarters of my time and sports, maybe a quarter of my time. I would say that striking a better balance in life is not a bad thing. Um, um, and, and the theme of balance has come into our conversation today in many ways, whether it's striking a balance between consumption and savings, striking a balance between your career and extracurricular activities. Uh, I would say find a couple passions that drive you and and really um, create a balance in your life. So I think mm-hmm. that's something that uh, that that uh, I would tell myself if I was 20 again. Okay. <laughs> I, I I just seem to uh, go from someone who's completely focused in sports to completely focused in academics. And I think looking back, had I uh, I would have done it a little differently. Yeah. Well, one of the things you've demonstrated in the in the way you've you've uh, uh, grown and changed careers is adapt adapt I can't even say it. adaptability, um, because that's another thing that's a life skill that everybody needs to have. And you know, as you as you talked to us today, I realized you were able to make really uh, you know profound changes and and become very successful. And it's because you were adaptable. You you saw options that made more sense. You changed. A lot of people aren't able to do that. So, uh, you know, I, I really congratulate you on that. Ted, I want to also invite you to come back at another time. I mean, this was all about you. I, perhaps we can talk about economics, how it affects society. Uh, everybody's looking towards, you know, the U.S. and how that's going to change things with the new government. Um, probably we can have a good podcast on that as well. So you're invited to come back. Great. Thank you for having me, Howard. Okay. And uh, stay safe. Um, And we'll be in touch soon. Okay, stay well. And thank you very much, Ted. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Take care. We want to thank Ted Siakopoulos uh, for joining us today on our podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe. 
You can find us on YouTube and I'd appreciate hearing from you. You can reach us one of two ways. You can email us at info at rewithhd.com or you can go to our website, rewithhd.com. So thank you for joining us today. Be kind to each other and we'll see you next time.